This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, September 30th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. Litigation following the chaotic, often incoherent lockdowns undertaken by governments during the pandemic will have an impact on government power during emergencies going forward. Robert Alt of the Buckeye Institute is representing the Big Board Bar and Restaurant in Washington, D.C., in their case against D.C.'s government. We spoke last week in Atlanta. You know, before we started recording, you mentioned that... Uh it's sort of easy to look at COVID restrictions that were imposed in 2020 and 2021 in the rearview mirror. A whole lot of businesses were simply shut down. A lot of people had a lack of, uh, in, you know, credible information. Science changes. Uh, our understanding of uh, this virus changed pretty dramatically over the the time period of uh, government shutdowns uh, and other sort of disruptions that we saw throughout the economy. But even though we are looking at it in the rearview mirror, cases are still happening that are dealing with the restrictions of 2020 and 2021. And you have one of those uh, based in Washington, D.C. We do. Uh, We represent the Big Board Restaurant, which is uh, basically a neighborhood bar and burger joint on Capitol Hill. And, you know, you know. It's owned by Eric Flannery, a Navy veteran, and his story is the story uh, uh, up until this year that was very familiar to a lot of restaurant owners and small businesses during the pandemic. He'd been struggling, holding on by his fingernails to keep his business open, to keep his uh, employees paid during the pandemic. He uh, had burned through his life savings uh, in order to keep the business running during the various requirements that DC had put in place, the shutdowns, the uh, the reduced work schedules where you could only have, say, I think it was 25% um, occupancy uh, at the tables, you know, for an extended period of time. Very difficult, obviously, to run a restaurant under those conditions. And he was able to keep on going. And then finally, um, there was the requirement that was announced in late 2021 that was to take place early this year, which was that bars and restaurants were to be were going to be forced uh, to check vaccine identification uh, cards of any patron, and all patrons and employees were required to wear masks. And so, the day before that particular requirement went into effect, uh, Eric Flannery tweeted out the terribly incendiary tweet. Uh, everyone is welcome at the big board yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Uh, and for putting out this tweet, DC government came down on him literally like a ton of bricks. Three separate agencies uh, came after him. They sent undercover agents uh, to come in and do stings to see what was happening in plain sight. He was very open about the fact that he was not going to check vaccine IDs. He was not going to require his employees to be treated like second-class citizens, as he put it. Uh, he found it to be quite offensive that, you know, just the general hypocrisy in which the rules were generally enforced, in which uh, if you were a patron, you had to walk, wear the mask for the five steps from the front door until you sat down, then you took it off, while his employees had to wear masks the entire time, you know, when they were two feet from you. Because they're standing up. Because they're standing up. Robert, that's not insignificant. Standing up means wearing a mask. Don't you know that? I, I, you know, once again, I I, I don't uh, 
count myself as an expert in virology, but I just, I was unaware uh, about how, how much more viruses transferred in the standing up position as opposed to the sitting down position. Okay. So he decided that he wasn't going to play this game, the restrictions he recognized. And I think in retrospect, correctly, that there was very little health and safety benefit to uh, a lot of the rules that DC put in place. And he said he wasn't going to play that game. What, what happened next? So at, at, at that point, three se separate agencies shut him down. They pulled his operating license. They put up a health order restricting him from, from operating. Um, they pulled his alcohol license uh, uh, so he couldn't serve beverages. Um, and those, those orders stayed in place even after D.C. went ahead and eased their restrictions. It was interesting that the vaccine requirement was relatively short-lived in D.C. So after the mayor pulled that, that particular order, the big board was still required to be closed. Uh, after they pulled the mask requirement, uh, the big board was still required to be closed. So he ended up reaching out, reaching out uh, to Buckeye, we, the Buckeye Institute, I represented him before all three of these agencies, and we were able to negotiate getting the big board reopened. And we thought that was the that was the end of the story. Uh, but uh, as, and as part of that negotiation, specifically with the D.C. Health Department, we had inquired as to whether or not uh, there would be any further fines or fees assessed against the big board or Mr. Flannery. And they claimed that there would not. Uh, and then they they came asking for their additional pound of flesh. The agencies said that uh, after a negotiated reopening, that there would be no additional penalties or fines. Yes, uh, but then DC Health went ahead and sought additional uh, fines for the original infractions. This wasn't for any new conduct. This was going back to his, the the original acts of failing to uh, to check the vaccine cards, failing to require masking, and so we're currently challenging uh, those those fines, but more particularly the authority under which they were brought. And I think this is this really is in many ways the important question here. At this point, for a lot of us, we look back at at COVID and the restrictions as being in the rearview mirror. But there still are a few challenges that are percolating in the system that challenge the underlying authority of the government to have engaged in the conduct to begin with. And that's really what, what we're getting to. And in this case, I think it's actually very, you know, if you'll let me wonk out, do my lawyerly wonk out for a moment, I actually think it's very interesting because essentially what happened what happens here? So D.C. government uh, is able to op operate based upon the Home Rule Charter, and Home Rule authority in D.C. is derived from the from the U.S. Constitution, from Article One, Section Eight of the Constitution, which grants to Congress the authority to regulate the federal district. They have delegated some portion of that authority to the city council and to the executive uh, to be able to govern the city. However, they retain uh, authority with regard to the federal district. So any particular piece of legislation that's passed by the city council, uh, uh, Article 1, Section 8 requires that the legislation be submitted to Congress for review during a 30-day period during which Congress can take action to disapprove or invalidate that legislation. There's an exception. The exception is for emergency legislation. 
but emergency legislation can only be in force for 90 days. And so what D.C. did during the state of emergency beginning in 2020, they stacked these pieces of legislation, 90 days, uh, you know, stacked on top of 90 days. In some cases, they actually did 180, as I recall, in passing them, but they stacked one on top of the other for over two years, uh, which functionally prohibited Congress from having any meaningful review. There, it, you know, it seems to clearly evade the general requirements uh, of the law. And you saw others, there were cases in other states, uh, Wisconsin, for instance, there was a challenge based upon the, the governor's attempt to sort of re- renew these requirements beyond the, the temporal limitation that was in the law. So that's the first problem. The second problem is there's a very weird provision in D.C. law that says during the state of emergency, essentially, you can't go to court. Um the the DCAPA, uh, which is essentially how if you were injured by a regulation promulgated by a DC agency, um, you know you would march into court and say this is a DCAPA violation, and I'm filing uh, pursuant thereto. Um, you are not permitted to bring an action during the 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 emergency order. Uh, it has to be after the state of emergency has ended. Again, the intention on this is clear. It's supposed to be for these, you know, very short 90-day periods, and then you can go ahead and get this. But because they stack these orders, one on top of the other, Mr. Flannery was barred from being able to walk into court for over two years. Um, Two years, that's a full term of Congress. That's not a short emergency. And so it's an interesting situation where this is a denial of basic due process. You're not permitted to get to court you're, you've got a situation where you're violating Article One, Section Eight, in a, in a way that's really kind of unique in terms of the violations that we've seen in COVID, but very similar to a lot of other provisions that actually did get struck down, where uh, where governors or agencies stacked one on top of the other. The Spanish flu of now more than a hundred years ago. How helpful is that experience, at least uh, in terms of understanding the proper authority? of government to deal with, you know, a legit emergency? Well, you know, it's one of those things where no one had taken a look at these early 1900s vaccination cases until about two years ago. And then all of a sudden, everyone became familiar with them and became legal experts on the niceties of those cases. And so that's really, that I think really gets to the point here. Um, You know, that's why these cases, cases like the big board, are terribly important, even if, you know, the, and, and in some cases, perhaps more so, because the exigencies of the pandemic aren't before us. I mean, it's one of the things I think that, that oftentimes is a little bit problematic about trying to get the court to look at these questions with fresh eyes. I think courts are a lot more deferential uh, during the heat of the moment, during an emergency feeling like they should be deferring to the expertise of the executive, to experts, uh, to agencies. But in the rearview mirror, you're able to actually take a look and, and see what actually happened. Do so without having the risk that this is going to cause you know grave harm or upset the apple cart in terms of expectations. Uh, and perhaps they can actually take you know a more calculated look at the actual legal authority uh, that the city council and the mayor had to issue these orders. And it's pretty clear that this was just a grievous overreach 
of the authority of the DC government. Um, and, you know, it, it's the sort of thing, you know, I, I think we're, we're all a little chastened at this point uh, about the claims of unbounded executive authority uh, to address emergencies. And so, so hopefully this will be an opportunity to assess whether or not DC acted properly uh, with regard to, to these sweeping uh, and sweeping broad and long emergency orders. So if when COVID 2025 happens, what will be, what do you hope to have established uh, as a matter of law with respect to government's ability to act in the moment, you know, often without full information uh, to try to, you know, as far as they're seeing it, protect people from a, a virus? Well, I think, I, I think what one of the things we learned this last time around is that checks and balances matter even during a pandemic. And you know, making sure that uh, that the the governmental checks that we have are in place, particularly political ones, which allow the people to have more of a say with regard to how it is that the government is operating. Those things are important. So he, so here in D.C., making sure that Congress, as a political check, has its say, uh, ends up being important. Making sure that the courts. Our doors are open so that people can actually bring challenges. That's important. So, so having those sorts of checks, I think, uh, are vital um, uh, in these situations. Let me give you a, a, another example, just talking about sort of how these things occur. We have another case actually in Ohio, likewise, that's percolating. And so um, one of the interesting issues that popped up during the pandemic is what happens with taxes? You know, uh, there, there's nothing certain in life but death and taxes. And if you happen to live in Ohio, where the Buckeye Institute is based, we have the most complex system of local income taxation in the country. You can be taxed both where you live and where you work. Um, so many people are, are familiar, for instance, with New York City's commuter tax. And if you go to New York State, I forget, I think uh, it, there's a relatively small handful of cities, including New York City, that charge commuter taxes. Um, by contrast, in Ohio, there are hundreds of cities that charge commuter taxes that are able to tax you if you, if you work in the city, even if you live in a different city. Um, and you can actually have overlapping taxes. You can be taxed both where you live and where you work on the same income. So it's it's a very messy system. Enter the pandemic. The governor issues a stay-at-home order, which technically makes it a misdemeanor for individuals who are not essential workers to show up in their office. So you can literally be fined $500 and face jail time if you step foot in your office during the state of emergency. The cities you know, realize this is a problem. You know, some of the cities like Cleveland, for instance, derive about half of their income from commuter taxes. And so they begin crying bloody murder. The General Assembly responds by passing a law that says you know, during the state of emergency and for 30 days thereafter, individuals who are working from home because of the emergency will be deemed to have performed their work at their principal place of business for the purposes of calculating their income tax. Now, I'm as much of a fan of Mr. Rogers as the next guy, but we're not allowed to tax based upon the land of make-believe. 
And that's functionally what they're doing. They're, they are pretending that you actually performed work someplace just so that they can tax you at a higher rate. Uh, and so Buckeye went ahead, uh, the Buckeye Institute, we sued uh, just about every major city in the state uh, over this practice. And our case against Cincinnati uh, recently was accepted for review by the Ohio Supreme Court, and they will be hearing arguments likely in January of this next year. And again, it's one of these things that seems like it's in the rearview mirror, but you look, this this is an issue that has potentially massive implications, not just for Ohio. Massachusetts actually did this against residents from New Hampshire. They taxed individuals who had been working in Massachusetts, but were working from home in New Hampshire as if they were still coming into to Massachusetts. Um, and California has been engaging, uh, attempting to engage in a number of different tax practices that strongly seem to suggest to me, just in terms of their attempt to expand uh, uh, income taxation as if independent contractors are employees in ways that suggest that they they would value the opportunity to tax extraterritorially for people who you know are perhaps contractors for companies that are based out of California. So this potentially has huge implications for tax policy, particularly for remote workers, uh, but it also has huge implications you know, if you have some kind of an emergency again in Ohio or elsewhere. Robert Alt is president of the Buckeye Institute. We spoke last week in Atlanta. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 